Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45, if you would please open to that passage in your, in, uh, the, your Bible, Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. And let's bow together in prayer, and then we'll study the Word of God together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. We thank you for this season of thanksgiving. And as we come into the season where we remember the coming of your Son into, our, into this world, we pray that throughout all of that time we re, re, may remember thankfulness, may remember to thank you for the all of the things you bring into our lives, those things that we think are good and those things that are a challenge. We thank you for each and every one of them. And Lord, prepare our hearts through this Christmas season. It's really difficult so many times, Lord, because of all the activity, all of the things that are going on, we sometimes forget the most important thing, and that is that you came into this world the world you created on that first Christmas day. Lord, help us to be good witnesses of you. Help us to be good witnesses of the incarnation. Help us to be good witnesses for the reason that you came into this world, and that is to go to Calvary's cross and die in our place. Take the penalty that we rightly deserved so that by simply putting our trust in Jesus Christ, we can have eternal life. We can pass from death to life, and we can be a part of your family. Lord, open our hearts to your truth this morning. Help us to hear you, and help us to obey you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. In Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45, we read this. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. <clears throat> they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said, can you drink the cup I cup or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Once again, we see in this scripture the warning about Jesus' coming betrayal. Once again, we see Jesus warning the disciples about his death by crucifixion. Once again, we see Jesus telling them about 
not only his death, but also his resurrection, that he would conquer death. And once again, we find that the disciples aren't paying attention. Thankfully, we're not like that. Once again, we see that the disciples aren't paying attention because they have something entirely different on their minds. And we see that in our passage, as in an earlier passage, they have on their minds which of them is the greatest, which of them is going to have the place of honor in the kingdom, in the millennial kingdom that they believe Jesus will usher in. Now, he will someday, but not at his first coming. At his first coming, he came to go to Calvary's cross where he bore your sins and my sins so that we might have the hope of eternal life by simply trusting in him. And uh, I know we don't give invitations at the beginning of messages. It's always at the end, right? But I want to invite you to trust Christ if you never have. If you've never put your trust in Christ, I pray that you would do that this morning. But once again, Jesus warns them about his coming death. Once again, he warns them And once again, they don't hear. Once again, he has to teach on true greatness. Now, remember Mark's pattern here that we've been noticing in his book. The first half of the book of Mark, Jesus is shown to be the Messiah. He's shown to be the one God sent to bear our sin. And he's shown to be the Messiah. The second half of Mark, which we're in, is where Mark tells us what kind of Messiah would be and what that would portend for his disciples, you and me. What we're going to see as we go through this particular section of Scripture, that first of all, in God's kingdom, greatness is defined by service, not by status or position. We're going to see as we go through our passage this morning that in God's kingdom, greatness is defined by service, not status or position. We're going to notice that John and James have a request based on status. They don't understand that greatness is defined by service, and Jesus will have to tell them yet another time. The second thing we see is that you and I often mistake authority for greatness. If you have authority, you're the great one. That was the thinking of the Gentiles. That was the thinking of the unbelievers, Jesus tells us. The third thing we see here is that we often have goals pressed upon us by the word, by, excuse me, by the world. We often have the goals that you and I set are pressed upon us by the world instead of by the Word of God. And they're pressed upon us by the world so much so that we don't hear God's voice. In this passage of Scripture, we're going to see that Jesus goes before us. Last week, Pastor Steve told us about the fact that we can, and it's on your recap for this week, that we can expect persecution. We can expect suffering. It's part of what Jesus promised us. 
what we see in our passage this morning is that Jesus goes before us, whether it's for joy or whether it's for difficulty or for challenges, Jesus goes there first. We see it in the passage Steve taught last week where he was the one leading the way up to Jerusalem. We're going to see it today in our passage where he challenges John and James to the fact that they will not be able to bear his cup or his baptism. They think they can, but they can't. Jesus goes before us. F.B. Myers is one of the great older, uh, he's gone now, of course, he's in heaven, but the great older commentators on the Word of God, he said this, the apostles cannot keep step with Jesus' eager steps, and they fear as an instinctive dread of coming events cast its chilling mantle around them. There was something in their master they could not understand. And this is true for you and true for me. Such moments come to all lives when Jesus leads us to the cross. How often he asks for a deeper consecration, a more complete crossing of natural inclination for the sake of his gospel, an intenser purpose. You see, you and I as believers in Jesus Christ, we have a greater purpose in life we need to separate ourselves to God so that He might use us in the, mean, in the ways and means that He desires to. Myers goes on, at His bidding, we must tear ourselves away from ambitions which had fascinated and dreams which had allured. We see that happening in our passage before us this morning with James and John where they had a dream of sitting in the right hand and the left hand of Jesus in the kingdom of God in the millennial kingdom. The places of honor, the places of status, the places of authority. That's what they wanted. But like Myers said at Jesus' bidding, we must turn ourselves away from the ambitions that we had found fascinating and the dreams which we had allured. We must no longer live on the lower level, however pleasant to flesh and blood, but gird ourselves to go up to Jerusalem. But remember this, brothers and sisters, Jesus never puts forth His own to tread a path which has not been trodden by his footsteps. Happy are they who follow him. Remember, there's nothing that you will face or can face or that I will face or can face in our lives that Jesus didn't go there first. That Jesus didn't prepare the way for us. He did. He prepares the way. He goes before us. Remember that. Another thing we will learn as we go through this passage is that Jesus calls us to live counterculturally. That is, that we are to live to serve, not to rule. But you see, our world loves flash and self promotion, doesn't it? It loves flash and self promotion. I was reading in uh, Tony Dungy's devotional book. 
where he was comparing Barry Sanders and Deion Sanders. Now, they're both football players, in case you don't know. And Dion has been in the news for the past uh, eight or nine weeks. Uh, his dreams aren't turning out so well in uh, Colorado. But that's another story for another day. Barry Sanders, uh, Dungy says this, Barry Sanders and Deion, San Deion Sanders came into the NFL at the same time. Behind the scenes, they probably weren't very different. They both worked hard and were considered good teammates by their peers, but each had a public persona that was very different from the other. Dion was known as primetime, flashy, loud, and proud. Not only was he a great player, he knew how to put on a show. He had figured out that in our society, flash sells. Barry was just the opposite. The old school athlete like Dion, he was a great player, but he rarely talked about himself. When he scored a touchdown, he handed the ball to the official and went back to the bench. Can you imagine that? In post-game interviews, he would praise the linemen who blocked for him and then get out of the spotlight. He was a classic example of the quiet, humble athlete most of us say we prefer. Both players got a lot of attention for their accomplishments, but Dion got even more for his showmanship. He brought a lot of attention to his own name and as a result got more endorsements and exposure. As much, and this is the key here, folks, as much as our society claims to commend quiet humility, we actually reward those who put themselves in the spotlight. Jesus calls us to live counter-culturally. In another place, Dungey says, too many people think they'll get the respect they want if they drive the best car, spend the most money, hang out with the hottest people, whatever they are, or flash the most impressive bling. Somehow, we started respecting things that aren't really worthy of our respect. How true that is. We started to respect things that aren't worthy of our respect. Jesus is trying to straighten that out in our lives, trying to call us back to understand what is worthy of respect, to understand what is true greatness. True greatness isn't how many people follow me, but how many people do I serve? That's the point Jesus will make in our passage this morning. Well, Jesus goes before us. He calls us to live counterculturally. And now as we look at our passage before us, there are two sections to this passage. There is in verses 35 to 40, a grab for greatness a grab for greatness, and there is in verses 41 to 44 the standard of greatness which is laid out by Jesus. In verse 35 to 37, we read the setup here, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. 
They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Now, what Mark doesn't tell us, but the parallel passages tell us is this, that not only did James and John come, they are the sons of Zebedee, they are the ones Jesus named what? Who remembers? Sons of? (laughs) The sons of thunder, right. I thought we'd use some sound effects this morning just to make things interesting. Um, They are the sons of thunder. But what Matthew tells us is that they came with mom, salame. Yeah, yeah, they came with mom and and it's mom who went to Jesus on their behalf and said, Jesus, would you place one of my sons at your right hand and the other at your left hand in your power and your glory and in your majesty in the millennial kingdom? Please do that for my boys. Well, what isn't clear to us without a little bit of study is that their mother is named Salome and their mother is Jesus' mother, Mary's sister. That makes James and John what? Cousins to Jesus. So there's a family connection here. They're kind of playing the family card. Let us have the great places in your kingdom. Let us have the places of honor, the places of authority, the places of power in the messianic kingdom. Now, we shouldn't be too, too hard on them because in Matthew chapter 19, and you can write this down or turn to this passage, Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28, the same context as our passage in Mark, we read this, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth at the renewal of all things, he's talking there about the millennial kingdom, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So I guess we shouldn't be too hard on them when they are asking for the right hand and left hand of Jesus' seats Shouldn't be too hard on them when they use their family ties. Some believe, by the way, that the family was well off, if not wealthy, based on Mark chapter 1 and verse 20, that they <clears throat> had a fishing business, and on top of that, they, had, they hired many people in their fishing business, so many believe that they were a wealthy family. And you can't really blame James and John because they were part of the three that Jesus would often take along with him when he would go into various situations. We see Peter, uh, Peter's the other one. We see Peter, James, and John at Jesus' transfiguration. We see Peter, James, and John with Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. We see Peter, James, and John with Jesus at the healing of Jairus' daughter. So, I guess they had some sense that they ought to be special. But what they didn't understand is that if you want to be special to Jesus, you have to be a servant. If you want to be special to Jesus, you have to be a servant. So they come and they ask. Now, you know, we we don't know, uh, we often don't study enough 
about the character of these people. And I thought that we'd take a few minutes of our time together this morning <clears throat> to look at a profile of John and a profile of James. One writer said this, because the apostle John wrote so much about love, it's easy to imagine him as a bookish, soft-spoken man with a squeaky clean reputation. I, I like that uh, description. But not so fast, the writer says. Let's go back and check the biblical record. John was a professional fisherman. He and his brother James once wanted to call down fire from heaven on some unfriendly Samaritans. When Jesus was arrested, John fled along with all the rest of the disciples. By the way, John was the last of the disciples to die. He was the last of the disciples to die. He spent many years persecuted. He spent many years in exile before his death, and he was the last of the disciples to die. Uh, the writer went on to say, what motivated John to write the five books of the New Testament, what sustained him through all those turbulent first years of the church when persecution, persecution was rampant, when 11 of his fellow apostles died violent deaths, what enabled him to cope with his own lonely exile on the Isle of Patmos? <clears throat> Perhaps the answer is found in an idea that John mentioned repeatedly in his writings. The recurring theme is love. It feels wonderful to be loved by another human, but when we catch a glimpse of the depths of the love of God, we are awestruck. Do you ever just sit and think about the love of God? Think about the magnificent thought that he loves me. How can that be in all of my meanness, in all of my selfishness? How can it be that he loves me? What a thought that is. It feels wonderful, the writer says, to be loved by another human, but when we catch a glimpse of the depths of the love of God, we are awestruck. And the writer challenges us, have you ever pondered God's infinite love for you? More than that, have you accepted the priceless gift of forgiveness and salvation that he offers? I hope you have. I pray you have. And I pray that if you haven't, you will, even today. The writer went on, to, another writer, excuse me, went on to say, John lived to write the noblest letter on, on love which has ever been penned or printed. He described cosmic events extending even beyond the limits of time. Well, that's a little bit of a profile of John. How about James? Now, by the way, while John was the last to give his life for Jesus Christ, his brother James was the first to be martyred. Isn't it amazing? They said they could take Jesus' cup and his baptism. And though they could not take Jesus because his was salvific, that is, his led to salvation, theirs did not, 
but they did suffer the cup and they did suffer the baptism. And one died first and the other died last in the service of the Savior they loved. About James, a writer said, Jesus singled out three of his 12 disciples for special training. James, his brother John, and Peter made up this inner circle. James enjoyed being in this, in this elite group, but he misunderstood Jesus' purpose. James had not yet grasped the nature of Jesus' mission. He could see only an earthly kingdom that would overthrow Rome and restore Israel's former glory. His understanding of God's kingdom would be transformed by Jesus' death and resurrection. Like James, our expectations about life will be limited if this life is all we can see. If for you and for me, all we see is with blinders on, all we see is this life. We are above all the saddest of people. This life isn't all there is. This life isn't all that there is. Like James, our expectations about life will be limited if this life is all we can see. And like him, we too must admit we can become consumed with securing a personal kingdom on earth. How long has it been since you withdrew from the distractions of this world, even for a moment to think about heaven and your future life there? Take advantage of the opportunity to do so throughout the day. And what a great season to do that, right? Thanksgiving, Christmas. Take advantage of the opportunity to do so throughout the day and let a heavenly perspective guide you in all your actions and decisions. James, the writer says, was the first apostle to die for the sake of the gospel. As a disciple, James' life was marked by inconvenience and difficulty. The two things we dread, right? We dread being inconvenienced. We dread difficulty. And I can tell you, speaking for the older crowd, you dread difficulty more every year that you add on to the, to the number as a disciple, the writer says, James' life was marked by inconvenience and difficulty. James' joy outweighed his sorrow because he grew closer to Christ through suffering. James' life was prematurely cut off by Herod. Why did God allow this? Peter was delivered. Why not James? Or why was so much trouble? And, and this is a question... Folks, that I've thought about many times in the connection with the homegoing of people I knew, and I just could not understand why they're taken so soon when they had so much yet to offer God. And this writer says, why did God allow James to be put to death and he delivered Peter? Why was so much trouble spent in preparing him for an apostle at which he never fulfilled. And the writer says there is no answer to these questions. And to these questions, and I would say there is an answer, and that is God is sovereign and used James and uses John and uses Peter 
and uses you and uses me for his glory, not for ours. He uses us to accomplish things that we cannot see and do not understand. Well, they had James and John had desire for the places of highest authority and highest honor in the Messianic kingdom, and they come to Jesus. In verse 38, we read, You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Now, we have to understand what we mean by cup and what Jesus means by baptism. Both of these terms are familiar Old Testament descriptions of suffering, of immersion in overwhelming sorrow, one writer said. The idea of the baptism, the idea of drinking the cup, have the idea of being immersed in overwhelming sorrow, in overwhelming suffering. In the Old Testament, the cup was used sometimes, as in Psalm 23, 5, to speak of the cup of joy, but more often it is spoken of in connection with divine judgment of sin. Psalm 75, Isaiah 51. You see, Jesus, in taking the cup offered to him by God the Father, would bear the wrath of his Father's judgment against sin, which you deserved and which I deserved and which Jesus took for us. That's what he's talking about when he talks about the cup. When he talks about the baptism, the picture in the Old Testament of baptism was of being submerged, particularly being overwhelmed by calamity. Being overwhelmed by calamity. It's used of being overwhelmed and grief-stricken, submerged in sorrow, Psalm 42, 7, Psalm 69, 2, and verse 15. Jesus was submerged, and it is hard for us to understand this, but Jesus was submerged in hatred and pain and death as he bore the burden of God's judgment upon sin. That's, make no mistake, that's what happened at Calvary's cross. That's what happened at Calvary's cross as Jesus hung on that cross, bruised and bleeding and crowned with thorns, he was submerged in hatred and pain or death because he took your sin and my sin upon his body. And your pain and my pain. So that we could be free. So that we would never have to worry about death. That's the baptism, that's the cup that Jesus is talking about in this particular passage. Verse 38, excuse me, verse 39, the boys answer, uh, James and, I don't know if I should call them the boys. Anyhow, James, 
and John answer, and they say, and I, here, here's where I'd like to have, you know, I, I want to hear the audio on this. There is no audio. I'm making a joke. It's hard to tell my jokes. I, okay. um, I would love to hear how they said we can. Did they say with this touch of sorrow in their voices, well, we can, we don't want to, but we can. Or were they really enthusiastic? If we're talking about the places of honor, if we're talking about the places of glory, if we're talking about the place of authority, we can do it. I don't know how they said it. They said, we can. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. That is, God the Father has prepared those places and Jesus listens to God the Father. But they would suffer they would suffer, not in the sense that they purchased anyone's salvation, but in the sense that they would suffer as a follower of Jesus Christ. Bishop Ryle said, the, said this, there are few true Christians who do not resemble James and John when they first begin the service of Christ. We are apt to expect far more present enjoyment from our religion than the gospel warrants us to expect. We are apt to forget the cross and the tribulation and to think only of the crown. We form an incorrect estimate of our own patience and power of endurance. We misjudge our own ability to stand temptation and trial. And the result of all this is that we often buy wisdom dearly by bitter experience after many disappointments and not a few falls. In other words, the writer is saying that you and I are not, in case we want to pat ourselves on the back and say, well, I'm not like James and John. We are. We are. Pursuing the wrong things. Buying into and being pressed into the mold of the world in our desires, in our goals, in what we wish for our futures. Verse 41, when the ten, I, I, I love verse 41. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. We don't have time to turn to the passage, the parallel passage in Luke or in Matthew. But what they were indignant about is that James and John had the foresight to get there first. <laughs> Got to get to Jesus. Got to get to cuz. They were mad because James and John got there first. They were mad because James and John got their request in first. 
Jesus, we wanted to make a reservation, but we're not related to you. They were indignant because they were captured by the same disease as James and John and the same disease that you and I are captured by. That is sin and the desire for first place and desire for honor and glory and authority. How many people can enthusiastically say, I want to be a servant. You know, the truth is most of us want, can say that. We can say we want to be servants. We just don't want to be treated like servants. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I'm on board with this servant stuff until you're treated like one. Well, got to move on. Jesus called them together and said, and, and if, you know, Jesus is the Son of God incarnate, He did everything right. I do everything wrong. I'd have called them in and I'd have gone, I am so sick and tired of covering this ground with you guys. How many times must I tell you? When our youngest was just small. I love this. I think about it often. He would do something that we had told him a million times don't do. Those of you with kids know exactly what I'm talking about. And I would get in his face, say, how many times must I tell you not to do that? And he looked at me with the most serious expression and said, two. <laughs> he thought I was asking. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, you know, Jesus said to them, got them together, knocked their heads. No, he didn't. It's not in the text. Got them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Not so with you, not so with me, not so with us. Not so with you. Instead, and by the way, always listen to the insteads of, Christ, of the Scripture. The insteads are important. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And then he gives the greatest example that can ever be given in verse 45 when he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There is no one greater than our Savior. There is no one greater than our Savior. And He didn't come to be served. He came to serve. Jesus is not interested in producing rulers, but He's interested in producing servants. Are you on board? The 
The test of greatness is not what service can I extract from others who serve me, but what service can I render? Now there's a few more things we would like to talk about. We would like to talk about the authority of the pecking order and the authority of the towel. And we can shoehorn it into next Sunday, which we will do. Let me just close with this. In God's little devotional book for men, which I find is perfect for me because it's little, okay. It has this prayer, which I think is a good prayer for us. So strengthen me, God, that the power of my example will far exceed the authority of my rank. May that be our prayer. So straight, so strengthen me, Lord, that the power of my example will far exceed the authority of my rank. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this passage of Scripture which is so antithetical to our world, so calling us to be countercultural to live not for glory, to live not for power, to live not for authority, to live not for attention, but to live for you and to serve your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.